please pray with me. Father, now we ask that your grace and your mercy will be upon us. Lord, as we sit at your feet, we ask that you would minister to us, that you would bless us and fulfill the promise that you made, that when two or more are gathered under the name of your beloved Son, there you are with us and there you are present among us. And so, Lord, we ask for your presence to sustain and to encourage us as we sit at your feet to hear your word being publicly preached. And now, Lord, we pray that you will bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You know, in the hopes of not sounding or even being arrogant, I've been told on many occasions that I have a way with words. Yeah, right. No, the reality is words have a way with us. It's true. You see, in spite of what you may have been told growing up as little children, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words could never hurt me. Let me tell you now, that is categorically false. Words can hurt. In fact, they can hurt a lot. And not only hurt, but words can anger, words can scare, words can guilt, it can shame, as well as make us happy, hopeful, and be at peace. Words are potently powerful because of the way in which they can cause a emotional, psychological, even physical reaction to come out of us, whether that be a positive or negative reaction. Well, today, I want to draw your attention to a word that most Christians don't want their attentions drawn to, and that's the word evangelism. Evangelism, most Christians don't like that word because of the reaction that evokes whenever they hear it, and of course, I'm speaking of guilt. You see, we Christians recognize that evangelism is something that God calls us and therefore commands us to do, and yet the fact of the matter is many of us simply don't do it, hence we feel the guilt, which is why every time we hear the word evangelism, the more we're reminded of our negligence, further making us feel more guilty, thereby making us feel even more negative in our reaction to whenever we hear the word evangelism. Well, to set the stage for today's message, which is on evangelism, I want to see if I can cut the cord of guilt from the get-go. And the way I hope to do this is by talking about evangelism without necessarily using the word. Instead, I want to substitute it for another word, or actually a phrase, that is very well known here at NCF, and that is the oikos principle. The oikos principle. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're probably thinking, PJ, are you trying to be a little sneaky on us by having us eat our evangelism vegetables without us knowing, so to speak? No, not at all. Rather, I want to try to convey to you that evangelism doesn't have to be this overwhelming thing that induces us to feel so guilty because of the fact that it is possible when you consider the particular method of evangelism that we espouse here at our church, which is living out the oikos principle or simply oikos evangelism. And so, as we continue our sermon series on the core values of our church, Today, we take a look at Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11, and as we do, I want to show you how evangelism is not only possible, but also encouraging because it is possible, because of how simple and how relatable it is for all of us to do. And so with that in mind, three things I want to say when it comes to living out the Oikos principle, and they are as follows. First, we're going to talk about the dual obstacles to the Oikos principle. Then we're going to talk about the message-filled process of the Oikos principle. And then we're going to end it with the gospel power of the Oikos principle. The dual obstacles to, the message-filled process of, and finally the gospel power of the Oikos principle. Let's begin 
with the first point, the dual obstacle to the Oikos principle. Now, before I actually go into actually telling you what the Oikos principle is all about, I thought it would be better to start off in talking about the two obstacles that get in the way of us living out this principle. And I call these obstacles, respectively, the conquering obstacle and the pietistic obstacle. So let's go through them, first beginning with the conquering obstacle. Read again with me. Uh, verse 6 of our passage where we read the following. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Okay. Now, in order to understand what's going on here, you have to know a little background. So here goes. Jesus, at this point in our passage, has just risen again from the dead. He miraculously resurrected from the grave. And for the next 40 days, he is going to appear and reappear to his disciples, giving further instructions to them about God the ways of God, and most specifically about the kingdom of God, which refers to God's rightful reign to rule over all things and over all people as the sovereign king, creator God that he is. And at our passage, we're at the tail end of the 40 days where Jesus is just about to leave the earth, at least in physical form, and ascend back into his heavenly realm. And perhaps the disciples could sense that they had limited time with their master because they felt compelled to ask him a question that's been burning in their hearts for such a long time, a question that goes like this, Lord, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this the time, Lord, that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, if that question sounds a little shady to you, then bravo. That means you have good theological instincts, okay? Because by asking this question, the disciples are revealing to us that they're a little bit off in their thinking when it comes to Jesus. And to help you figure out what that might be, consider these words from Pastor James Montgomery Boyce as he writes the following, quote, The disciples who were with Jesus in the days between his resurrection and ascension still had old-fashioned ideas, and one of these was that the kingdom of God was going to be established by political, earthly power. Their idea of the Messiah was a soldier like Judas Maccabeus, who was going to be strong enough to drive out any occupying military forces. In these days, the land was occupied by Romans. So, the Jews were looking for a Messiah who would expel the Romans and set up the earthly kingdom of David. The the disciples expected to rule with him in this kingdom even after the resurrection. The disciples had these warped ideas, end quote. What's he saying? He's saying that the disciples were using the kingdom of Jesus as a way to conquer their enemies. In other words, they were exploiting their relationship to Christ as a way to overrule, to dominate, to have power over their adversaries. And this is something that the church has had to contend with. Even our own Apostle Paul had to deal with this nonsense when it came to his adversaries in his life of ministry. Consider the words that he once recorded for us from his experience of this in Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. He says this, It's true that some are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry, but others preach about Christ with pure motives. They preach because they love me, for they know I've been appointed to defend the good news. Those others do not have pure motives as they preach about Christ. They preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely intending to make my chains more painful to me. It turns out there were quote-unquote disciples in the days of the early church that were simply using Jesus to promote themselves. And what's so sad is that many Christians today have that same idea inspiring their forms of evangelism. And what I mean by that is people will tell others about Jesus, not for the sake of expanding the kingdom of God, but to expand their own kingdom. Though by, by using Jesus, they can elevate themselves on a platform that's either a social platform, a cultural platform, a political platform that gives them power and dominance to conquer their quote-unquote 
adversaries, usually people who don't look like them or come from their culture or background, so to speak. And if you can't figure out why that is such a bad thing to do, why that's such a bad idea, consider these words once from a study from the Barna Institute. Listen to what it says, quote, almost all practicing Christians believe that part of their faith means being a witness about Jesus, ranging from 95 to 97 percent among all generational groups, and that the best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to know Jesus. Millennials in particular feel equipped to share their faith with others. Despite this, many millennials are unsure about the actual practice of evangelism. Almost half of millennials agree, at least somewhat, that it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. Millennials are two or three times more likely than any other generational group to believe that disagreement means judgment." End quote. Turns out, the younger Christians of today are not sharing their faith. They're not doing the work of evangelism because they think it's immoral. And the reason why they came to such a wrong conclusion is because they have been able to rightly observe the ugly motivations of the older generation of why they quote unquote did evangelism. They could see that what inspired the older Christians to share their faith was not to share Jesus for his own sake, but to use Jesus to promote themselves so that they could have power to dominate over others culturally, socially, politically. You see? And when you realize all this, then you discover the first obstacle of living out the Oikos principle. It's the craving for power. It's the desire to rule over and to dominate over other people, culturally, socially, politically, what have you, okay? So that's the first obstacle that gets in the way of living out the Oikos principle. Now let's move on to the second obstacle, which I call the pietistic obstacle. Let's skip down to verse 9 of our passage. We're starting there, we read, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, come on back. Here's what's happening. The disciples have just witnessed an astounding phenomenon. Right before their eyes, the Lord Jesus Christ literally rose up into the air and ascended up into the heavens and eventually disappeared in the clouds. And I venture to guess that if I was there with them standing and witnessing this event, I'd probably be doing the same thing that they were, just staring up with their mouths gaping wide open in shock. But then look at what happens in verse 11. Two angels, those are the two men dressed in white robes, by the way, right? These two angels start rebuking the disciples. They rebuke them by asking this question, why do you stand looking into heaven? Now, when you first hear this, it, it just sounds so weird and it sounds so inappropriate because after all, these are angels of the Lord. Angels whose prime directive is to promote the praising of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I think Jesus ascending into heaven is a pretty praiseworthy moment to take in. So why, oh why, do these angels rebuke the disciples to get them to stop fixating on something that was really a praiseworthy moment. Well, when you remember that this passage is all talking about evangelism, it makes total sense. Let me explain. You know, many Christians recognize, and they'll even admit, that the work of evangelism is a priority of the church. But many of them will excuse their lack of prioritizing evangelism by pitting it up against another priority of the church, let's say, the worship of the Lord on Sunday. 
Take a listen to what Pastor Tony Evans once said on this. He said this, quote, Some churches are so heavenly minded, they are of no earthly good. They sing, shout, and pray while the community outside continues to spiral downward into social and moral decay. People in churches like this love God, but they don't take that love outside the church walls to the neighborhood. They're basically hiding from the world and its ugliness. There doesn't appear to be any relationship between this heavenly gathering and the hellish environment outside its walls. Churches like this are looking towards eternity, but are of little benefit in history, end quote. What's he saying? He's basically saying what the angels were telling the disciples, and it's basically this. Stop fixating about you being in heaven and start focusing on getting other people into heaven. Again, stop fixating about you being in heaven one day and start focusing on getting other people in heaven. You see, so often we Christians are negligent of our responsibility to tell others about Jesus, and we end up having a whole cold stone heart against those whom God loves, namely the lost, people who need to hear about God, and guess who they primarily hear it from? From you, Christian. They hear about the gospel, they hear about God from you. And yet we just neglect that responsibility all in the name of, oh, I got to do worship, or I got to go to this Bible study, or I got to study this theological tomb. And we use our piety, our spirituality, as an obstacle to actually doing what we're called to do. Now, right about now, many of you, all of you, hopefully, are feeling the weight of my words, and you're feeling quite unsure of whether or not you can smell that guilt that's all too familiar whenever the topic of sharing one's faith comes up. But if it is, fear not, because I'll, now I'm ready to tell you about the process that can rid you of the guilt when it comes to sharing one's faith. And to do so, let's go to the next point, the message-filled process of the Oikos principle. Let's read again just the second half of verse 8 where we read the following. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Okay, come on back. Here Jesus tells the disciples the process in which he wants them to share the faith. He tells them, first start off in the city of Jerusalem, then move on to Judea, and then go to the outskirts of Samaria. Now, before we go into the depths of this process itself, I just want to pause for a moment and cause you to linger on the fact that Jesus gave a process at all. Because whether you realize it or not, it is a huge deal that Jesus gives us a clear process to follow. Why? Well, let me use this personal illustration. Many years ago, when I worked at one of my previous churches, my boss at the time, the senior pastor of the church, approached me, and he asked me to do something for him in a very short amount of time. You know what he wanted me to do? He expected me to get the whole church doing evangelism within a span of three months. He literally came up to me and said, John, by the end of May, three months from now, I want 99.999% of our congregation evangelizing to everyone. And that's it. And I looked at him, and I was like, okay, how exactly do you expect me to do that? You know what he said to me? He literally said, figure it out for yourself. And the way he said it, the underlying message embedded in it was super clear, which was, and if you don't figure it out, you're fired, right? You're gone. You're gone. And needless to say, I was just filled with such frustration because I felt like I was set up to fail. You know, I had no sense of guidance, no direction, no plan, no process, and therefore I was haunted with a massive fear of failure. And Christian, I imagine you feel the same way as well. Whenever you hear a preacher, whenever you read a scripture telling you, you must do the work of sharing one's faith, you also are paralyzed with a sense of fear of failure as well. And it's at that point we need to go back 
to what we observe in what we just read in verse 8, the fact that Jesus gave us a process. Because by virtue of giving us a clear process, Jesus is giving us his own underlying message. And guess what? It's the complete opposite of the one that my boss gave me all those years ago. You know what his message is? Do not fear failing when it comes to sharing your faith. That's what he's telling us. By virtue of giving us a process, he's saying, do not fear failure when it comes to sharing your faith. Now, of course, by saying this, is Jesus promising that we're going to have a 100% return rate in terms of however many people we tell, that's the same number of people who's going to come to saving faith? No, of course not. But what Jesus is promising is that we don't have to fear being humiliated, being rejected, being condemned by him, by our quote-unquote success rate of those who come to faith that we share our faith with. We don't have to worry about that. Take a listen to these encouraging words from an evangelist by the name of William Fay. He once said this, quote, Through the years, many people came into my life to share their faith, but I would not receive it. I sent these people away, discouraged, because I either insulted them, antagonized them, or persecuted them. And if they walked away from me believing they had failed, they believed a lie. For I never forgot the name, the face, the person, or the words of anyone who ever told me about Jesus. God is sovereign. You are not responsible for causing a person's heart to turn towards God. It is God who draws people to himself, not you. You see, success is sharing your faith and living your life for Jesus Christ. It has nothing whatsoever to do with bringing anyone to the Lord. It has everything to do with obedience. Even if you do not have the privilege to see someone respond the first time you share your faith, you have not failed because you were obedient." End quote. The fact that God has given us a clear process to follow tells us that we don't have to fear failure. We just have to be faithful. We just have to follow faithfulness. And so let's do that now by considering the process that Jesus wants us to be faithful to. Going back to the process itself, Jesus says to his disciples, when you start off doing evangelism, when you start off sharing your faith, begin in the city of Jerusalem. Start right there and nowhere else. And the question is why? Out of all the places that the disciples could have gone to begin this missionary journey of sharing one's faith, why Jerusalem? Well, it has to do with this thing known as oikos. Oikos. Now you're wondering, what's an oikos? Well, let me tell you what it's not. It's not the non-fat Greek yogurt that you can pick up at any local supermarket, okay? That's not the oikos I'm speaking of. No, the oikos I'm speaking of is the Greek New Testament word that literally means household, okay? And it literally refers to the various kinds of relationship that a person has in the various spheres of life that they walk in, whether it be your family life, your work life, your school life, your recreational life, what have you. And here's the thing, if you ever study of how fast the early church was able to grow, why it grew so fastly? It's because Christians would share their faith first and foremost to the people in their oikos networks, the people that they already knew, their friends, family, associates, co-workers, and so forth. Consider these words uh, from Pastor Charles Arn as he writes, quote, the early Christians knew that when the message of faith was heard and demonstrated by friends and family who were known and trusted, receptivity to the gospel increased tremendously. Webs of common kinship, the larger family, common friendship, friends and neighbors, and common associates, work associates, and people with common interests or recreational pursuits are still the paths most people follow in becoming Christians today. The conclusion is clear. The majority of people today can trace their spiritual roots directly to a friend, relative, coworker, or an associate." End quote. See, Jesus told his followers that when it comes to sharing one's faith, you have to begin in Jerusalem because that's where their oikoses were located. That's where it started for them. And the 
practical takeaway for us is simply this. When it comes to you, Christian, sharing your faith, it always begins and it must always only begin with those who are near to you, who are dear to you, and who are peers to you. Again, when it becomes how you start the process of sharing your faith, it always starts with those who are dear, who are near, and who are your peers to you. This is why Jesus wanted his followers to live out this oikos principle. Because as you share your faith and someone in your oikos becomes a Christian, that means they can now take the gospel to their various oikos that goes beyond your own personal borders. And not only just your personal borders, but even the borders of your city, of your state, of your country, even out into the whole world. Again, Pastor Charles Arne says it this way, each new person reached for Christ has his or her own group of relatives, friends, and associates who are candidates for the good news. Research shows that on average, each new Christian has 12 people in their oikos who are not Christian. In most cases, everyone in a new Christian's web is outside of Christ. The process of identifying receptive people and reaching to them is never completed because with each new Christian, there are new contexts and opportunities, end quote. If you want to reach the world for Jesus, it has to begin with those who are near, who are dear, and who are peers to you, okay? Now it's at this point, some of you are hearing all this and you're wondering, Pastor, can I opt out of this process? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure I want to do this. Maybe I can instead hand out tracts to random people in downtown Flushing, or maybe I can go on summer missions and start telling the gospel to a bunch of people who I'll never see again, or at least not until next summer. And the reason why you feel that way is maybe you feel you have no credibility with the people in your oikos, for whatever reasons. Maybe these people know too much of your shady past. Maybe they know too much of your current problems. Or maybe they know the buttons they can push right now that will trigger you off in such a non-Christian way. But for whatever reason, you think that this oikos process, this oikos principle, is just not for you. Well, I'm here to tell you it's for those very reasons that the Oikos principle is exactly how you need to live out your call to share your faith. And to show you why, I go to my final point, the gospel power of the Oikos principle. Let's read again verse 8, but this time the whole verse we read. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now notice. Before Jesus actually tells the process to the disciples, he first promises that they, the disciples, are going to have power, specifically the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, you might be wondering, why does Jesus bring the topic of the Holy Spirit into a conversation about sharing one's faith, about evangelism? Well, believe it or not, it's to address those very reasons I ended my last point with, the reasons why you think the oikos principle is not for you. Let me explain. You know, in the New Testament, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit has many responsibilities in the life of the believer. But the most prominent and therefore the most important responsibility the Spirit of God has over us is to change us and to transform us to be more and more like Jesus Christ. Consider 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 16, we read, But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away, for the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So, all of us who have had the veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him, Jesus, as we are changed into His glorious image. Transformation is the unique and special work of the Spirit of God where He changes how we think, how we feel, how we act, how we react, how we respond, how we interact with those around us to where we become and behave more like 
Jesus Christ. And guess who are the people in your life who will see that transformation with the greatest clarity? That's right. It's the people in your own oikos. You see, this is why Jesus wants us to live out this principle more than any other particular method of sharing your faith. Because people need to see not only the transforming power of the Spirit, but they need to see what that power assumes, namely the belief in the gospel. People need to see belief in the gospel at work through you. That's so crucial. Now, why do I say it that way? Well, here's the sad reality. When many Christians today try to share Jesus with others, what they end up doing is trying to sell Jesus to others. And what I mean by that is people will make such preposterous and outlandish promises to the people around them that they will receive if they believe in Jesus. Like, hey, if you become a Christian, Mark, I promise you're going to have more peace, you're going to have less problems, and therefore you're going to have prosperity. Right? You're going to have more peace, less problems, and therefore prosperity. And what ends up happening is Mark will believe this prosperity message rather than the gospel message. And what ends up happening is they discover that it simply won't be happening. Right? They'll still struggle with no peace. They'll still have problems and they will find no prosperity. And as a result, they get so angry, they get so disillusioned to where sadly many of them will say, you know what, I tried that Christianity, didn't work for me. And they'll never consider it as the truth that it is. But here's the thing. When you live out the oikos principle, that problem will never occur. Because even though you are a Christian amongst the people in your oikos, are they still going to see that you still have problems? Are they still going to see you struggle with peace? Are they still going to see that you're not in prosperity? Of course they are. Yes. But at the same time, are they also going to see that in the midst of that lack of peace, in the midst of all those problems, in the midst of that lack of prosperity that you're still changing to be more like Jesus? Yes, they will. And that's what they need to see. They need to see your transformation in a context where such transformation shouldn't be happening because it's not the kind of environment that should support and induce that kind of transformation, yet it's still happening to where they ask, how are you still able to change? How are you still able to be different? See, that's what they need to see. They need to see the power that comes in belief in the gospel because it is a power that comes from a person, a person, and that's Jesus Christ. That's who they need to see in the gospel. They need to see the person of Jesus, which begs the question, who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is God. And because he is God, he has every right to conquer, to dominate, to rule over his adversaries, which includes you, me, all of us, because we're all wicked, wretched sinners. But he deserves to punish us with such punitive wrath, but he doesn't. God instead comes into the world as a human being, living an obscure life, and he suffers the wrath, his own wrath, upon himself in our place by dying on the cross as our substitute Savior. And why does Jesus do this? Because he loves us. He loves us with a forgiving, merciful, gracious love, a love that is not duplicatable in any other context or in any other person, in any other faith, in any other relationship. That is what people see when they see the work of transformation that comes when you believe in this person and his incredible love for you. And that is going to be the selling point. Listen, the only selling point for Jesus should be Jesus himself. And that is what people need to see as you live out the oikos principle. 
So yeah, do you still have problems? Do you still struggle with peace? Do you still lack prosperity? Yes. But what a perfect context to shine forth the power of Jesus' love to change you to be better so that people can see the truth that Jesus is the hope of the world. And it can be their hope. He can be their hope as well. Don't you see? Do you understand now why the Oikos principle is truly the principle we should live out when it comes to our faith? I hope that encourages you to know that God is at work in you, which means you can truly live out this principle, Christian. But the question is, do you believe it? I hope you do. And if you do, let me end today's message with some practical takeaways. If you currently are not in an Oikos group right now, okay, and you've been part of our church for a many number of months, many number of years, let me tell you now, you need to join an Oikos group right now. Because our Oikos group is the ministry vehicle where you get educated, encouraged, and empowered to live out this principle known as the Oikos principle, okay? And furthermore, if you've been part of an Oikos group and you have gifts of leadership and you haven't been serving in leadership, now's the time to step up and serve as a leader of Oikos group. And if that is so, I want you to contact Pastor Charles, okay? He's sitting over there. You can't see him, but he's here. And he's heard me say this, so he's going to expect your email, your phone calls, your texts. Reach out to him. Amen? And let's make 2021 and every year here on out the year where we choose to live out the beautiful hope of the gospel known as the Oikos Principle. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. We ask now that this message will really resonate deep in our hearts and inspire us to be different than what has so often been the case, where we've been so negligent in living out this call of sharing you with those around us. Lord, you are the greatest joy. You are the greatest treasure that we possess. And we know you gave it to us, not to hoard it to ourselves, but to share it to a world who is desperately crying out for it. And so, Lord, embolden us and empower us to live out this process that is so natural, that is so clear, and that is so life-giving to the people around us. Oh God, would we be a church that truly lives out this principle for the glory of your name, for the good of the world. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.